بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن ولا Welcome everybody to the Safina Society Nothing But Facts live stream on a beautiful sunny Thursday afternoon or noon midday in the state of New Jersey. It's 1 p.m. here Eastern Standard Time as uh, we stream from La Cocina 367 Somerset Street, third floor. Uh, where this is where our soup kitchen is today, and let me kick off right away with a story. You had never have never heard probably a story as amazing as this regarding contemporary Muslims and Dawa. Yeah, we're now talking around maybe late nineties or so when a man from the don't put the pictures up yet. Put the pictures up later, inshallah. A man from the Arab countries, one of the Arab, one of the Gulf countries. They're very well off. They're wealthy doctors, all that. And his wife said to him, "Let's leave this world and give our last days to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala in Dawah." Okay, so they went off, and the husband agreed, and they had some connections. And where did they choose? They chose Madagascar. We've been there. Kids have been there. Everyone loves Madagascar. Let's go to Madagascar. So they go to Madagascar, buys a pickup truck, lives in a small little hut, little apartment, really. It's not a hut. It's an apartment. And he starts inquiring, starts asking about the countries, the nations that need, or the cities in the area that need Dawa. Who needs Dawa here? Uh, interestingly, he hears about a city in Madagascar, or next to Madagascar, named Jidda. Oh, he said, all right, got to go there. Must have been Arabs there. Or maybe it's just a coincidence. We'll get there. So he gets to a city, which is they call Jidda, and he talks to the people, and he says, uh, how did you get this name? He said, oh, this was a city founded by the residents, uh, uh, by residents who called it Jidda based on their home city. He was amazed. He said, tell me more about it. He said, look, if you're amazed by this city, you're going to be even more amazed by another city, right, called Mecca. He says, what? He says, you have to take me there. He said, no, 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 you can't go there. Why? It's way too far. It's inland in the middle of the desert, the, 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 the jungles, sorry, of East Africa. He said, people in the past got there. So I can get there. And he insisted. He said, all right, Adi Chaudhry, come sit. How was the dinner yesterday? Good? He said, uh, I, I insist. So they said, okay, go. Give him a guide. They went to the airport. They took a long flight, about four hours, landed in another city. Then got, they got out of that city, and then got into the oldest car he's ever seen. And he's like, not uh, 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 old by our standard. He said they had to hook it up like this, like with wires like that. There were no seats in the car and no doors. You went in and you sat like on the metal, straight on the metal. He drove around and he sees most of the cars are like this in the city. And he said, don't you guys have cars with doors? The guy looks at him and said, no, nah, I've never seen one of those car with a door he drives one hour 
with this car in the middle of the jungle. Uh, it's like desert almost. And the East African desert's all red. Like the soil's red. They get there and they stop right in front of a river. He said, all right. He's like, are we, we arrived? He said, no, they left. He said, no, we got a ways to go. But the rest of the way is by foot. So he said, okay. So they get on a little thingy, paddle across the river, and there's crocodiles in the river. He's seen crocodiles in the river. Passes the river, and on the other side of the river now, it's jungle. It's swamps and jungles, right? And he sees all sorts of, like, animals walking by, like, their farms. But it's jungle. So they're walking and walking, and in some cases, the water of the jungle is up to this chest, right? And his wife is with him, okay? They walk, and they're like, how long are they walking? They keep walking in jungles for four hours. You imagine you take a flight for four hours. You get a rickety old car for an hour. Then you have to walk for four hours, right? He walked for four hours. So much so, one time, he was back in his home country. And he went from one city in Saudi Arabia to Khubar. Is, I don't know how long it is. And the AC wasn't working in the car. Okay. And the AC, uh, by the way, someone tagged Soheib because he's got to make a movie about this. Okay. Um, and the AC wasn't working in the car and they apologized to him. Okay. He was like an older man. Uh, and people recognized him and were respected him. He said, apologize for no AC for an hour drive. He said, we would go in, in East Africa and get in a car in the back of a pickup truck and go on non-paved roads, like no roads, deserts, desert. The car would be moving up like this, and you'd bang up around for 18 hours to get from one village to the next. So he gets there. He arrives at the city called Mecca. And he goes, it's not a city, it's a village. And he goes to talk to the villagers. And when you go to these places, you have to learn first. Yeah, you have to learn how to deal with them. You cannot talk to anyone unless you first talk to the, tri uh, the tribal chief. You talk to the chief first. So he goes here and asks for the chief. The chief welcomes him. He gives the chief a, a thobe, one of those cheap thobes made in China. That's what he had on him in his bag. He gave it to him. Chief took him in. Whenever these people are so far out, whenever they get a guest, it's a big deal. The whole tribe comes. Who is this guest? So he said, um, tell me about yourselves. I've I seen your cities called Mecca. I originally am from Mecca. He means in general. He's an Arab, right? I'm originally from Mecca. So I came out of curiosity to know what about your city. What is this? He said, our great ancestors are from Mecca. And they came here over a thousand years ago. And they settled this city. And he said, so you're Muslims. He, they said, and there's no sign of Islam. Like their dress is not Islam. There is not a single trace of the deen of Islam here. Okay. And they said, we're Protestant Muslims. He said, 
what? He said, yeah, we're, our origin is Muslims, but the type of Islam we follow is called Protestant. And he said, I'll explain this. He said that we used to be called Muslims, right? Our origin is Muslims. And the French came along and they looked at our books and they stole our book about 300 years ago. They stole our book. And they said, we will teach you the right Islam. And they built a church for us. And they gave us another book. They said, this is even better than the one you have. And we said, well, what is the difference? They said, no difference between Protestant and Muslim. And they said, then what do you worship? He said, it's, we, we have uh, the church and we go there Sundays and we worship God and his son. Trinity base. So that was the initial meeting with them. He then went to his tent that night and he prayed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to show him a way to, to, to convince them otherwise. And he kept making dua and Allah ta'ala inspired him with the key was that he said, the only way to reach anybody is you never make them feel you are better than them, and you're telling them what to do. And I guarantee you, that is the number one reason why any da'iyah fails. He actually holds himself, and if not he holds himself, he gives off the vibes that he's better. Okay? And that's the problem. So, Allah Ta'ala inspired him to come out and talk to them in a different way the next day. And not that he was arrogant the first day, but he kept saying, I, I'm also from Mecca. He took the word I out of it, okay? And he said to them, and he said, in, he made up a little story. He said, you people here have relatives in Mecca. They miss you. They love you. They know about you. They talk about you. They sent me here to discover if you're still okay. They became ecstatic. They became ecstatic. And he promised them that they would get help from the relatives in Mecca. They didn't even know what Mecca was, like where it was. He said, he said have you ever heard of Saudiya? No. Have you heard of Hijaz? No. Have you heard of the Arabian Peninsula? No. Never heard of any of that stuff. Okay. Villagers, you saw Matt Walsh and what is a woman? You see that scene? Villagers. Okay but not in desert, in jungles. Okay. So he said, uh, show me your book. They brought his book, and the book was a mixture of the Bible, the Quran, their own history, and all sorts of magical stuff. Sha'wada. But it was written in their language, but Arabic letters. So he knew that these people have okay, some connection. It's true that they have this connection with the Arabs. He then said to them, it's written on like old parchment paper. And he said, I see you have, there is paper. Why don't you use regular paper? They said, no, we call that nejis. And he said, the French brought that paper, right? So we don't write our holy book except on old, they got used to, they made their own paper, okay? And it was the old way that Arabs used to make paper. 
Now, so hey, now listen up because you got to make this. This got to be a movie. Okay. So he continues on with them and starts learning their names. What are their names? One man says, Rabakari. It doesn't ring anything. It doesn't connect anything to him. Sounds like, you know, it's a foreign language. Next tribe. What are the next tribe? Next person. Different names. Another person, though, says, I'm from Ra'umari. Passes on. Starts maybe putting a connection together. Next one. Ra'usmani. Different tribal names, African names, but also these other names. Okay. Ra'alawi. Ra'aliyu. And then uh, he started realizing these are descendants. Name One name is Bakri. Next is Omari. Next is Uthmani. Next is Aliyu. Right? And, they, and he said, well, what's Ra? And he said, that is like when you honor somebody. Like the honorable title. And he realized, this truly are. These people are from, their origin is from the Arab Muslims. So... They tell him about the church and everything. And he says, you know what? Your relatives in Mecca, they worship Allah himself. They don't worship a son. And he leaves it at that. One mess, one word in the whole day. And he didn't tell them what to do. He didn't tell them what's true and false. He said, your relatives in Mecca, your origin, they only worship one God. They don't say he has a son. And they say Isa is a messenger. He left it at that. Next day, bring some gifts. And they say, you know what? We talked about what you said. We're going to stick with our relatives. Just like that. Right? We're going to stick with our relatives. Right? And we're going to say, Tawheed. So he says, look. He started now considering things. He said, I see something strange here. Your sand here, the soil, not sand, it's soil, is, is red. It's very red. Noticeably red. But the leaf is green. Who does this? How, is our, how are the leaves coming out green when the soil is red? And he says, nothing but Allah. Right? It has to be Allah. So it has to be a creator. He said, look, this place, if it doesn't rain here, you all die. You know crops because they, they grow rice. Their farm is all rice. That's what they grow there. And they said, um, these clouds, who brings down the rain? can only be Allah. So he's trying to start getting them to be conscious of, of, a, of the creator, right? And they accept what he's saying, okay? And everything is going smoothly with, the, with this tribe. So finally, they accept uh, Islam. The tribal chief accepts Islam. He brings the whole other, uh, uh, the, the whole tribe, and he says to them, you need to, the tribal chief says, we're now Muslims, and we worship Allah alone. And we don't worship Jesus anymore. And it's only uh, uh, a messenger. He is a messenger of God, not the son of God. And we're going to rename the, the church into uh, a masjid. Go out a masjid. So they go, and then he doesn't say anything. But when they go, they worship in their own ways. So he waited some time. Because he also said another thing. He said, people get unsettled with too much change too quickly. Okay. So he left it for a while. Yeah. All the while staying there, living with his wife there in the jungle. Okay. Time passes and he says, and he goes one day and he prays in the open in front of them all. They said, what's this? He said, this is how your relatives pray. 
Oh, we got to pray like this now. Okay? Show us how to pray like this. So he starts teaching them salah. But first, of course, wudu. Right? And teaching them what's najis and what's pure. How to make wudu properly. So they accept it. And then he realizes that he's now teaching them. He's living off of them, in a sense. He sends for some gifts. He gets some more gifts. There's people coming and going. And he gets these gifts. And, and he realizes that if, if I'm going to teach them, for every one thing that I teach them and make them to make a big decision, i got to bring some gifts. So he goes and he just brings some little gifts. Sometimes the gifts are so minor. Sometimes they're like cucumbers, right? Fresh cucumbers from the market, or something like that. Getting gifts from the other local villages. Because now that where they are, he doesn't have to go back to the capital to get stuff. There's other villages. So there, then he starts teaching them about CM. And then about covering their bodies and dressing properly and all that. Well, one thing leads to another, and this ends up being years upon years upon years of working with this tribe, which was called the Antimor tribe of East Africa. And that is merely one incident. That's one story of the stories of a great man who lived in our time and died in 2013 by the name of Abdurrahman al-Sumait and his wife, Umm Suhaib. This man went to college in the 50s and 60s and went to medical school, okay? And his charity work started from the city of Kuwait. Okay, up a little bit. Uh, from the country of Kuwait. He all, it all started with this young man when he was in college and he passed by the South Asian workers sitting in the heat waiting for a bus to come. Then they go out, put out a few um, coins and take this miserable bus to work. And then they work all day. So he said, look, these guys were spending money, their bus on wages. Why don't we help them out? You can go. So he gets his friends together and he said, let's come together here. And let's buy a used car. They buy a rickety old used car, right? Like a van, a used van. And then he says, we'll take turns. We'll drop them off to, on our way to school. So on our way to school, they pick up the workers. Now, anytime there's a worker sitting in the street, whoever's day it is to have the van, just pick them up, drop them off. Let them save their money. And let them sit in an air-conditioned van instead of sitting in the heat and waiting and waiting and waiting in this miserable life. That's how his love of helping people began. Okay. When he got married, uh, he, went, he became a successful doctor. He studied tropical disease. Uh, he went to Baghdad for medical school because that's where the best... He was Kuwaiti. Ends up going to Baghdad. That's where the best medical schools were at the time. He ends up going to Liverpool for specialization, McGill, Canada, uh, all fo focusing on tropical disease. He comes back, begins his career, does really well, has a lot of money. In his mid-30s, he's almost, they're living a very good life in Kuwait. And his wife right now starts saying to him, you know, this life is all just, we just compete with the neighbors, we just buy stuff. Like, this life is meaningless. Like, we eat. Like, what's the point of this life? So he said, okay, let's, let's start helping out with dawah. Let's go give dawah. And they said, where? 
So they said, look, these Asian people, okay, they need help. Let's go where they are in the subcontinent and go help them out. We'll give them medical treatment and stuff. So they said, okay, they made the intention. Now, between them making the intention and actually doing it, a woman comes and says to him, would you fund a masjid in Malawi? He said, sure. Cuts her a check. That's it. Then he says, like, I want to see. I'm funding a masjid. Like, I want to go see it. So he goes to Malawi. Put the map up and see if, the, if, 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 if Malawi's on the map. I don't even know if it is. Just lower that a bit. Yeah, that's good. So he ends up in Malawi, East Africa, and that's where it all began. Once he got to East Africa, he saw the need of these people. And not only that, he saw something that really bugged him. He went to a village, okay? Everyone had a Muslim name, and there were masajid and crescent moons everywhere in the village. But everyone was wearing a cross. And he said, what's going on here? They said, oh, we had a drought and the missionaries came. And we, we love them. They did everything for us. And they said, become Christian. So we became Christian, right? These are village types really respect anyone who helps them. And they don't argue. They have a chief mentality, right? Like, if you help somebody, if, if someone helps you, you owe them. You should follow their ways. So they followed their ways. He started chit-chatting with people, and he found out that way back in, in the 70s, okay, he heard okay, that there was a convention that took place in Colorado, 1972. Okay? And many heads of state and many dignitaries and the Pope himself attended. They set themselves a goal that from 1975 to the year 2000 is 25 years. By the year 2000, that Africa would be a majority Christian nation, a uh, continent. And, and the Pope was all about that and funded it. And Protestants were involved. Different groups were involved. Even the Protestant Christians, they didn't get along. But there were millions upon millions of dollars. So he said, oh, we got to help these people. So the trip is over. And the wife, she meant like, let's just go on a, instead of going on a vacation, let's go help do Dawah. So instead of going on summer, like a winter break or something with summer vacation, they would go to Dawah. So they spent this one vacation in Malawi and they saw all this stuff and they came back. Worked again, have children, teenagers now. Next vacation, you know what? I want to go back. Let's go back to those people. All right, we'll go back. You know what? Let's buy an apartment here. Bought an apartment there. And back and forth, back. Finally, one day, he realized, this is not going to work. You cannot just go for two weeks, two months. It's not gonna, you're not going to have benefit. So he said, I'm, I'm going to take a sabbatical, one year off. And I'm going build to build up uh, a center there. And he builds an African Muslim aid organization. Okay. And he starts building it up using his money. Of course, he earns the Ku Kuwaiti currency. It's even better than the dollar. Even better than the British pound, at that at least from what I know it uh, of what it used to be. And he's now 
ma- ma- he has massive uh, his massive operation. He spent ten months in East Africa. He pr- produced a massive operation. Okay, he gets back to Kuwait, and he has so much good news to tell his family. But then something bad happens. It's like his kids and him don't connect anymore. He spent 10 months away from teenagers. You know, the age 12, 13, 14. He spent 10 months away. Him and his kids have a disconnect now. So here he is doing all this work. And we're talking like 80s, I think, right? Early, late 70s, early 80s. There's not, you don't call every day. I mean, kids today, you get on Wi-Fi, you just put it there on video. They put it there on video. And he spent all, all day, right? Just on video with your kids. People do that sometimes. Can't do that. You know, there's no such thing as calling. It's a big deal to call international calls where he is in the middle of the, these, these jungles. So what he came back and thinking, I'm going to have all this great news. All of a sudden came crashing down because not connecting with his kids. And it was his wife that took all the good news that he said and said, well, there's only one solution. We're not leaving this work, but we can leave this life. Let's all move there. A crazy idea, right? All right. Resigned. Okay. Put his money, assigned people to invest his money for him to fund the projects. All right. Him and his wife, they mo- the whole family moves to Kenya. And they start doing the dawah there. Village to village, village to village, village to village, doing the dawah. Okay. And when he starts doing this, he comes back to Kuwait. They travel apparently through Baghdad. He gets arrested. What is this traveling back and forth to Africa? They get, they get arrested. Right. He goes, come down, get some money, check on his investments and go back. Now, what would he do there? He would just pick up on any tip and he would travel to that village. He would travel to that village and sometimes he would encounter near-death experiences just traveling to the villages. And he said the biggest fear that he had and the biggest problem were the cobras. Cobras come out of these jungles while you're, you could be sleeping. Cobras come out of the jungle while you're walking, you step on something it might irritate a cobra. And he fought with a cobra over three times, each time almost dying. Here you have an Arab man. This is not some Australian-American adventurer, right? These are Arabs. They're used to sitting, and no offense to them, but some of you are from the Hejaz. You know that they're not, these are not the adventurous people, right? Of course, their forefathers probably could handle anything, right? But the contemporary Arab today is not into this. They don't do this thing. This is not like an American who's going to go do something crazy or an Australian. They're all into the outdoors, even the British, right? This is not an Arab thing. And for an Arab woman to join him, she went on every trip that he He never went alone. So the cobras were a huge problem for him. What else was uh, his issue? He needed to expand his organization. He would go to a village... Just like he would the Antimor, the village would accept Islam. Well, now what? So he started a fund 
he started to cut uh, a, a part of the endowment for shiuch. So he goes and he starts calling all the colleges, all the Islamic colleges of the Arabs uh, in the Arab countries. Uh, you have a recent graduate wants a job, posting these job offers, and he, he's like, no one was taking it. So he said, so I had to increase the salary more than the government post in the mosque, right? No one was taking it. So in one case, he, he stayed himself. In one of these situations with one of these villages, nobody would take the job. No electricity, bugs everywhere. Well, if you're married, your wife's definitely not going, right? Even if you have some adventure. Well, what if she gets pregnant there? Like, what about all these problems? Well, they asked him. He said he never thought about it. Just do it. But on top of that, his knowledge in tropical uh, medicine came in handy because that's what you, what you have there. Uh, uh, he needed that in the swamps and the jungles there. Now listen to this. He gets one day to a jungle, uh, a village, I'm sorry, and he starts opening up. First thing, he opens a medical clinic. First thing, he opens a medical clinic, gives out medicines, does procedures. By this time, he has a whole team, massive team, in Kuwait, in the capital, se- investing money, sending the medicines, establishing stuff. And he's got now, time is passing, three, four, five years now in East Africa, full time. Now it's, it's a developing operation. And one time a child came, and uh, he says to the mother, unfortunately, there's nothing much we could do for this child. And we're leaving soon. They don't stay in one village for too long. We're leaving soon, so, you know, there's nothing much we could do. I apologize. So she says, well, at least would you pay for him with your endowment? It's all his personal money. And some people donate now, too. Would you pay for him? at least to live comfortably for the rest uh, for the duration of his life he said yes and he moves on yeah and he would do things like that to try to help people as much as possible he found out that after a while that he doesn't have information he needs information okay so guess what he does he goes and he hires local professors to write him detailed reports on the villages their histories, their backgrounds, the social status situation. And now he's like getting these reports from professionals now. Six months later, guy comes back with the report. Five months later, guy comes back and presents him a report, right? And gets paid for it. So one of the things he realized is that Christians tended to be only 40%, but that 40% is increasing because of the missionaries. Muslims were 60%. Or 50%, and there's animism. Pagan animism was still there. And, but that was very a minority. But in the report, it said that the majority of, of the people, of the leaders, they're always Christians. Like, Christians are ruling, like, 80% of the positions. They're in 80% of the ruling class positions, although they're only 40%. This is because the Muslims, they're very poor, and they're uneducated. And that, that's their main problem. And so what happened was the British and the French, when they came, who did they, and they built a lot of these institutions, well, who did they favor? They favored the Christians. So the Muslims are now a majority, but they're, uh, they're not in these positions. So what does he do? Starts up a college. And that became a second thing that he starts up. 
medical clinic, schools, regular secular schools. Not uh, may whatever the subjects were that they studied there, and then eventually the big ones were colleges, actual universities, right? And he would go back to the Arabs, show them what he's doing. And people say bad things about the Gulf Arabs. Well, you shouldn't because they funded this stuff, right? We always say bad things about them. Oh, they're this, they're that, they're other. It's so easy to just throw an accusation, right, on people from far away. You don't know what they did. They funded these colleges, his friends, his medical field friends, and the friends of their friends and friends of their friends. And it started to grow little by little by little. People became so impressed with the work. And they funded universities and they built several colleges after that so that the Muslims could be, they weren't exclusively for Muslims, but they were for them. They were pushing them and they were trying to um, uh, uh, even out the playing field. A lot of groups became angry with him and Christian missionaries began speaking ill about him. Christian missionaries start getting really worried about this movement here. And they started to poison the tribes, right? Started to tell the tribes about him. And one tribe got so riled up because they were animistic. And they knew that he's coming and he basically, when he comes, this stuff goes away. Well, he found one day himself getting shot at. They tried to shoot him. They tried to assassinate him. So this, this is, you're like the wild, wild east. You got cobras. You got tribes. You got diseases. He said that the, 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 the places there, the, he traveled in some places for so long to get to a village. 18-hour trip to get to a village. On the way, the only water that he had was in a pond. And he said... I had to actually push the pond, push the, 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 the defecation of animals away from the pond, away from the water, just to take a sip. And the missionaries were like, what is this man reaching everywhere? He's going everywhere. He said he would not hear of a village except he would say, let's go. Okay, do you want to know anything? No, let's go. Right? And this is the value of where sometimes being impetuous is good. Look at these images. And they built wells okay, in these villages. He went to village to village to village to village. One day he went to a village and a woman knocked on the door. And she said, I need to see him. He said, bring him in. He didn't have like secretary or anything. So he said, come in. He said, uh, she said, she had her, uh, uh, her son with her. And he said, recite. So he recited. So he said, MashaAllah, wonderful. And she said, you know this boy? He said, no. He said, you came to this village 13 years ago. That boy lived and you've been paying for it ever since. And he memorized the whole Quran. SubhanAllah. So the boy was saved by him. He uh, sponsored him. And the boy memorized the Quran. Subhanallah. He went to one village. Telling you, Suhaib, this has got to be a movie. He went to one village that was very in more in the more desertified area. It was dry. 
not the jungles. The people there arrived. They saw, oh, like they, they view it like there are civilized people and then there's us. That's how they view it. And he came and, he, and they said to him, they gather around him and they said, make it rain. He said, only Allah knows how to make it rain, right? By the way, he's leaving different countries. He's going to different countries. So this is deep in the desert now. He said, if your deen is true, because we know you're going to come here and you're going to have a different religion than us. We need to know if it's true. If your religion is true, let your God make it rain and we'll follow you. He said, I, he said no, 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 that's not how Islam works. That's not Islam. Islam isn't by these things. Islam, I will teach you what Islam is. You can choose to decide to take it or not. He talked and talked and talked. At the end of the talk, he said, what do you all think? They said, if you make it rain, we'll follow you. <laughs> right? Well, this talk, we're dying here, right? We are dying here. Make your God make it rain. And think about this. It's actually true, right? If you think about it. Oh, you're telling us your God is true. Yes. He hears. Yes. Okay, we're dying here. Talk to him. Make it rain. He went back and he said that he began to weep. He said, I have so many sins. My salah is tisqa is not going to be valuable. He said, but Allah, they're not testing me. They're testing your deen. So he wept. He said, this is the key with this man. He understands certain things. He said, before my heart spoke, my, my tongue spoke, my heart was already weeping. My, my, heart, my, my heart was humbled and my eye was weeping. Then my tongue spoke. And I said, oh Allah, they're not testing me. They're testing your deen. So give victory to your deen. By the time they made it back to him, their place was flooded with rain. And the whole village entered Islam. SubhanAllah. Amazing story. So this was the... Um, this is the story... For 29 years, he did this, him and his wife. Towards the end, he was sitting in a tent and he saw that the amount of sicknesses that he had, okay? He had contracted malaria. He had contracted high blood pressure. He had contracted heart diseases. All sorts of diseases that caused his, him and his wife, their, his or, their organs were just shutting down. Like they couldn't survive this. It's one thing you go on a vacation, you get dysentery once. You go on one trip, semester abroad, you get malaria. You live 29 years in an area that compounds and he's sitting one time in a hut. Because wherever they would go, they would settle, right, for a while. And so in this certain country that they went to 34 countries and in, in the continent of Africa. In this one situation, they were sitting and he started wondering if he's pushed it too far. And he looked at the face of his wife and his wife said, his, his, his wife's face had now the signs of utter exhaustion from this way of living. I mean, it's one thing to be exhausted after nine weeks. This is 29 years. But he, he thought at that point, maybe we went too far. Maybe we go back to Kuwait. We get air conditioned. We get some help, good food. We go to the doctors, take some medicine, and recuperate. Okay? And so he said to his wife, he said, you look like you're finished. You don't look um, 
healthy. You look really tired. She said, subhanAllah, just this moment, I was thinking in my head, if we ever went to Jannah, would we be this happy? Subhanallah. This, that's Allah puts sakina. He puts happiness in the, in the hearts of people when they do these deeds. That's the immediate compensation. Ask anyone who does the one hour a week dinner that we do here, which we hope to expand. Why do you keep doing it? Right? It's because you get rewarded right away when you do sadaqah. Immediately in your heart. And Allah says in Surah At-Taghabun, Give Allah a, a good loan. He'll multiply your money for you and He'll forgive your sins. There's no money that goes anywhere except that it comes back to you. No, that, that you give in sadaq except that it comes back to you. He died in 2013. By this time, he was deemed a legend. No Arab had done anything close. And let's go to the statistics. Do we have that thing with the statistics of all his achievements? Because you're not going to believe. Here it is. I got it here. I'm going to read it. You could put it up. But I got it here. Listen to this. He financed 200 centers for women. And I'm going to tell you the best statistic at the end. Women's centers, women's health, women's issues, etc. 200 women's center, uh, uh, centers for women. Four universities, 860 schools, 204 Islamic centers, uh, schools, Quran schools, 204 Quran schools, 51 million masahif in different languages, Quran. 95,000 students were established by him. 95,000 students. 15,000 orphans. 5,700 masajid. 9,500 wells. And you ready for the last statistic? Conversions to Islam. Take a guess. 200,000, what's your guess? 500,000. 11 million. 11 million across 34 countries based on his work and his organization. They enter Islam with the tribal chief. If the tribal chief enters Islam, that may be in one day, 200,000. If the chief enters Islam, that's how they operate. 11 million people. Some of them were uh, 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 an area maybe of 800,000 that had lost their Islam, like the Antimor people. He comes in contact with them. They retake their Islam, their shahad, right? They enter Islam again. When he died, his funeral was attended by all the dignitaries of the Arabs, Everyone attended his funeral, and the foreign minister of Malawi showed up at his funeral. And they said, uh, they asked him, well, well, what brings you here? We know he did good work. He said, I'm one of the orphans that were sponsored by him. And he sponsored Muslims. He sponsored any orphan. He didn't ask questions. Orphan, orphanage. 
School. He kept things pretty simple. He kept things simple. But he always put an imam in the masjid to teach people Quran, to teach people things. So that, is this not a man who deserves a movie? And guess what? Suhaib, why, we're talking make a movie as if it's like write a blog post, but <laughs> Suhaib needs to do this. I'll tell you why. Because if the Christians do it, if Hollywood does it, all the Tao is going to be out of it. There's going to be no Tao in it. The greatest thing you could do is save someone for eternity and not give them a sandwich for five minutes, right? The, is What's greater? To cure the heart of a person from shirk and kufr that will last him an eternity or to cure someone from a disease that will give him a good life for 50 years? Well, how amazing is that? To save someone's life for 50 years. We know how amazing. Well, how amazing is it to save their eternity? He's saving their eternity. So this, it could actually be a series, to be honest. It could be a series. You could have probably 30 episodes. Because you can go to his wife and his kids, and they will tell you stories from him. The, I don't know if the wife is still alive, but the daughter received a proposal. She said, there's one condition you have to be okay with going to Africa. And they go to Kenya all the time. They go to Africa. They go to Mozambique, Madagascar. And they go to all these places where they're connected and they have people there and they have uh, their organization there. The key to this is no isti'ala. Never make anyone imagine that you're better than him than them. Okay. And the thing is, you can only do that when you actually don't believe they're better than you. Right? Because if you believe if you believe that they're better than you or that you're better than them, it's going to come out whether you like it or not. Right? If you believe they're better, it will come out of them. It will come off you. But if you actually genuinely don't believe you're better than anybody, people will they'll, they'll feel that. Uh, he did use, this is going to be a little segue into our next topic. He used basic arguments to make people realize Islam. He, he used basic arguments uh, to make people convinced. Let's, let's pull Nas in because this is going to be our lead into our next topic. Okay. He said to the people one time, he said, you don't have light bulbs. He said, no, they said, no, they didn't have light bulbs. He said that they said that only in the big cities they have light bulbs. So he said to them, um, well, what would you say about somebody who was would, would power you for free, right? And they said, wonderful, but we don't even have the electric cables. He said, what about if I told you that you could get, um, there's a new light bulb out that doesn't even need uh, electricity? They said, okay, but everything here is on the floor, so the light bulb will be on the ground, Right, as long as they build a lamp, uh, uh, as long as they build a stand, fine. See, they believed everything because they don't know any better that there's a light bulb that has no cost, no electricity, and they and he said, no, this light bulb. How about this? I'm going to make it. It could it could hang in the sky by itself, and it schedules to turn on and off by itself. They said, oh, this is amazing. He said, okay, what if I tell you you already have one? Okay. Do you think this was made by some animist god pagan? Who made that sun? Can you, you wouldn't have believed that your god could make a light bulb 
and this was a kind of discussion and kind of argument or, or talk that he would talk to people with. And what do we call this other than like rudimentary, rudimentary kalam, just like Prophet uh, Ibrahim alayhi salam. Okay. All right, where's Nas? Yeah. So he would talk to the people, very simple things like this. Uh, Hassan, Hassan. Yeah, that one right there. Yeah, he should be coming on. Yeah, he should be coming on. Just send him the link again. Let's see some of the comments while Nas comes on here. Is this not like one of the most amazing stories you ever heard? 29 years. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Very simple things. Yeah. SubhanAllah. SubhanAllah. I mean, think about them. They, they, when you say, all right, the God is living and hearing. Okay. So let's talk to him. That's how simple it is. Right. You see what kind of suffering we're having. They're not going to ask for luxury. Right. And they just ask genuinely. So Muhammad Shah says, this reminds me of the stories of the great awliya of the past. They say the wali of the wali Sango went to Indonesia and Jawa and Mu'ayinuddin al-Chishti in the subcontinent and did all these things. And that's exactly right. But it goes to show that um, there's two things here. Number one, the people were pretty close to their fitra. Okay? They're pr- pretty close to their natural way of living. And he was very humble. So, all right, let's uh, expand Nas there. Nas, can you come closer to the camera, please? Yeah, that's about good. All right, we have our guest today. And the reason that we're combining these two, that story and this story, is that because we are living also with people who need dawah. We're living with a group of people, make him a bit bigger too. Uh, We're living with a group of people who may need some more sophisticated arguments in the dawah. And we, we, yeah, even bigger. Uh, We need to learn these things, and that's why we're bringing on Nas. Recently, Sheikh Hamza Karamali put out a series. Very good. Sheikh Hamza Karamali put out a series. And um, he put out, he, he has very nice uh, uh, marketing. Everything is very program. Everything's great. Nas went, Safina Saidi uh, uh, reconnaissance mission, Intel operation, to, to see what exactly Sheikh Hamza Karamali is teaching. Naz himself is interested in Ilm al-Kalam, and he's got a book coming out that Safina Saidi is publishing, inshallah ta'ala, on the problem of evil. We're very excited about this one. And so, but this is not about, today's talk is not about the problem of evil. Today is about what are the contemporary, in contemporary language of what, modern Westerns, what is this, the simple, basic way, simple arguments 
that are also, in a sense, on the cutting edge in the sense that they're not ones that will be shooed away easily by the skeptic and the atheist. So, uh, Nas Hassan, welcome to the live, Safina Saidi live stream, and you can get straight into uh, the contingency argument. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamualaikum, everybody uh, on the stream as well. Um, so as Dr. Shadi mentioned, uh, I was able to, uh, Safina sponsored me to go and um, basically do some research as to this new phenomenon of Kalam 3.0, as Sheikh Hamza Karamali calls it. And uh, there has been some drama on social media about, uh, is he trying to change Kalam? Is he trying to like, bring new things like uh, Bidar or something like that. But I'm just going to talk to you about what it is, right? What his contentions are, and also some of the new arguments that I've never heard about that he mentioned in this course. Um, and one of the biggest takeaways that I got was the method of argumentation, right? And from my personal history uh, growing up and also learning these topics from Christian writers, it actually colored a lot of my assumptions. And uh, alhamdulillah, this uh, weekend intensive, it cleared up a lot of those things uh, for me. So the first thing that Sheikh Hamza mentioned was the importance of evidence. And one of the things he mentions that's, that's so insightful is that our civilization is a civilization of evidentialism which means that whatever position we say or whatever position we assert, we, our scholars have tried to back it up with some type of evidence, either logical, either scriptural, textual, either historical, whatever you might consider as evidence. And one of the things he mentioned is that Christians are not evidentialists, right? That Christians, the root of their faith is not based in evidence. And this is something that I noticed in you know, my uh, engagement with Christians. And this is something that I really didn't want to like accept because at the end of the day, they say, okay, we believe in uh, the Trinity. We believe in the incarnation, things of this nature. And this is like a faith that the Holy Spirit puts in our heart. And like, no matter what you throw at me, I'm not really going to change my mind, right? And, but Sheikh Hamza said that, well, if you're speaking with the modern people, who are naturalists, who are scientists, who are all about evidence, 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 or atheists, this is actually good. Because if both of us are evidentialists, if both of us are saying that, look, if you give me evidence, I'm going to change my mind, mm -hmm. right? then we can have a discussion. But if the other person is saying, look, no amount of evidence, look, I like to argue, let's argue, but no amount of evidence really going to change my mind, then there's no point arguing arguing with that person at all, right? And one of the things he also talks about is that this presenting of evidence is actually how the Quran spoke with the Arabs. And it spoke to them using informal arguments, right? Not formal structured syllogistic arguments that we have in Kalam books and logic books and things like that. But this was Kalam 0.0, right? It starts with the Quran because the argument audience were the Arabs. Mm. And it spoke to the Arabs who had uncorrupted fitra. And informal arguments, like you were mentioning with the, the story of the sheikh who converted, what is it, like a, 
11, 11 million total was 11 million by the end of his 30 years. Yeah. And I bet you that every single village he went to, he devised a strategy of how to present Islam to them. Like you mentioned in that first case, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if he went to a certain village and he started talking about the contingency argument, they're, they're going to be like, what is this? Right. Or mm -hmm. if he went to another, like if he went to a town, for example, where people were a little bit more developed, then he might take a different approach. And the same thing is with Kanan, that the whole point of it is to speak to the audience that you're speaking to mm. and basically assert your positions and then also respond to their objections using their language. Right. Mm -hmm. So Kalam 1.0, the birth of Kalam really with uh, Imam Abu Hassan al-Ashari and Imam al-Maturidi rahimahullah, they what they were doing is they were also responding to an audience of that time. Mm. And and that audience were actually Muslims. Mm. And the Mu'azidis, they, they believed in God. They believed in the Prophet, they believed in the scriptures. So what they were doing is they were responding to the Mu'azidis who were saying, based on their understanding of logic, for example, that God cannot be encompassed in sight. Right? And in Kalam 1.0, what they did is they said, the, the scholars said, no, let's analyze the nature of sight. Let's break it down and respond to your objection. Because mm -hmm. we say that God can be seen in paradise, right? And this does not go against the, the notion of, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being unlike creation, right? Mm -hmm. And so they offered a, an analysis of sight and they said, look, in our analysis, sight is... Uh, an ability that's created in the heart, right, by the thing that is making itself disclosed to you. So with yes. this definition, خلاص, you know, Allah cannot be seen in this world, but in Jannah, it's, it's not inconceivable, it's not logically impossible that God could create an ability in us to be able to see Allah SWT. Without direction and location and space. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Well, what they that was the key is, issue. Exactly. Exactly. So now they're responding to that audience, the the Mu'tazidis. Okay. Now there, are, there's it's like a boss fight, right? There's a new boss every time. Mm -hmm. so now there's a new new cat in town, a new um, boss, a new uh, opponent in town, mm -hmm. and these are the Aristotelian Neoplatonic philosophers. Mm -hmm. When the Muslims started engaging with the old world, the world of the Greeks, the world of the Romans, and that knowledge started coming through. Now, there are new issues that are coming up. And now, the scholars have to respond to those people. And this is Kalam 2.0. Mm -hmm. Our Kalam books are basically responding to Neoplatonic Aristotelians and showing them why. Well, they said, for example, that the universe is eternal, right? So this is why you'll see a lot of Kalam books, uh, you know, pushing home the concept of hadith, of creation. Mm -hmm. The universe was created. Why the Kalam cosmological argument is such a, like, a, uh, like it's everywhere. It's in all the Kalam books, right? Not because this is something that the Quran focuses on, right? The Quran is actually, if you look at the arguments that it uses, it's very heavy on the design argument. Right? Mm, but the, the, the Kalam argument is focused on a lot by the Mutakallimun because of the audience that they're talking to. They're speaking with people that deny creation. Basically, so it's, it's, a, it's addressing the need. 
Exactly. Well, exactly. just like fiqhs, like modern fiqh, uh, how much do we spend on the financial uh, matters of fiqh because that they're so developed here, mm-hmm. right? And there's so many different types of contracts here. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the past, they may have had masa'id related to, to cows and cattle. Uh, exactly. were more spent exactly. on... To, okay. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and so, but the, the point is that the specific issues are not essential to kalam. The method is essential, right? And it's the method, which you know, inshallah I'll be talking about in a bit. The method is so important because it allows us, one of the things uh, Sheikh Hamza said is, I mean, I was thinking this way too, that, oh, in the madaris, in order to respond to modernity and update our madaris, we need to refute X, we need to refute Y, feminism, liberalism, X, Y, Z, like we need to refute a million things. Mm-hmm. So Sheikh Hamza said, no, you don't need to refute everything. What you do, the method of kalam is you assert. Yeah. You say, this is what we believe. This is our argument. And then you let the other person object. And based on their objections, right, the body of kalam grows. Based on their objections, you respond using yes. your method. Yeah. This is exactly what our kalam books are doing. If you look at the hawashi and things like that, is, oh, here's an argument. All right, this is what somebody else said, mm. that this argument is not valid. Okay, here are our responses, why it's valid. And so this is how the body of Kalam grows. And so this is what he calls Kalam 3.0. Mm. That let's assert what we believe in the language of modern philosophy, in the yeah. language of modern naturalistic science. Let's assert our Sunni positions and then let them respond. Mm. Let them ask them, well, like, why do you disagree with this? Where do you disagree? Which, which premise? Right. Yeah. So we say something like, um, and I'll give like a couple examples of this uh, this method in practice. Okay. So the first thing uh, we need to understand is now scientists are also evidentialists. They believe in evidence, right? Uh, so or so they say. Atheists they believe in evidence. So why do evidentialists all disagree? Now the key reason they disagree is because they have a different epistemology. They're deferring over what knowledge is uh, we can include in the discussion, mm-hmm. what knowledge to exclude. So the first thing that Sheikh Hamza did in the seminar was go through the epistemology of the Islamic mutakallimun, the scholars. Uh, while, we're to, while we're doing this, I want Habib to put a link for his class. What's his website called? It's Not called, to interrupt uh, you. No. Should, I, should I give that the website? Yeah, yeah, tell us. This. You could just say it and Habib will type it in here. It's called uh, basirageducation.org, I believe. All right, stick that in there, please. Yeah. Basira with two E's, I think, right? Basira uh, instead of an I. Basirageducation.org. Uh, it's with an I. Oh, it's with an I. Sorry about that. Does it have an H in it? No, it's B A S I R A. Yeah. Okay, good. Oh, by the way, I had a thing to say about this. I don't want to cut you off your train of thought, but the way I look at it is like this. If epistemology is is based upon uh, transmission, observation, and reason, so the today's naturalists and scientists and physicists only ad, essentially only admit observation, observed physical mm-hmm. empirical science. Mm-hmm. The philosophers only admit reason, and mm-hmm. the literalists within uh, each religious tradition only admit transmitted knowledge or only uh, meaning like they totally pretty much dismiss the other sources. Right. Mm, Doesn't that make sense? 
Yeah. That very like twenty thousand foot view. I I kind of agree with that. Yeah. 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 So um and okay, so continue. Things, yeah, yeah, one of the things that he did actually was he went through the types of knowledge. Yeah. And he explained it in the lingo of modern philosophy, mm. right? Because what we do when in our kalam books we have this uh, the two types of knowledge, right? Yeah. The the non-inferential, which we call badihi. And then we have the inferential knowledge, right? Which is, uh, which requires some type of syllogistic reasoning to come up with, right? It's like, for mm -hmm. example, if I said, um, I don't know, if I said uh, all humans are mortal, Socrates is a human, and therefore Socrates is mortal, right? So th this would be a type of inferential knowledge. Mm -hmm. But non-inferential knowledge, Badihi knowledge, is the things that we have self-evidently. And this is where a lot of the disagreements are happening today because, and then I'll, I'll mention the types of non-inferential knowledge. I think this is very important. Um, I won't list them all out, but obviously we know there are like self-evident propositions, like logical propositions, like for example, uh, two divided by two is one, right? Or, you know, one, one half of two is one, uh, things like that. Mm -hmm. So these are analytic propositions. They're like evident, nobody can disagree with them. Now, one of the things that Sheikh Hamza includes in this list, and it's very interesting, is what he calls scientific inference, mm -hmm. right? So scientific inference, he says, is a type of badihi knowledge. It's not inferential. And we actually spent a long time, a lot of objections, but when he explained it, it made a lot of sense. So for example, if we say the universe began to exist, like the Big Bang uh, theory does, right? Mm -hmm. They're not saying that because, oh, they sat there with, there's a philosophical argument for that, right? But I'm saying from the scientific lens, yeah, gather tons of data over years, over decades, over decades, and they're forced to admit a conclusion, which is the universe begins to began to exist. Yeah. Looking at all this data, it fits together perfectly and somebody just had an intuition that boom, look, the universe was created. The, the data tells us, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a type of scientific inference that's almost badihi knowledge, that's self-evident. And we can include this in our arguments for God, mm. in our arguments for Islam, because Islam would never contradict uh, any type of genuine scientific inference, right? Yeah. Now, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're thinking about a certain scientific theory that does contradict Islamic, uh, um, Islamic Sunni positions, right? Which is the theory of evolution. Yeah. Yeah. So I, this is what I asked Sheikh Hamza, like, uh, how would we support the scientific inference of evolution? We have all these data points, all these fossils, so on and so forth. And the best inference we can find is, well, things evolved from other things. So Sheikh Hamza, he gave a very, very nice um, re reply to this. And it just it completely evaporated the problem for me. And that is scientific inferences operate with the data that you have, right? Mm -hmm. you're, you have all this data and you're making a conclusion. He says, well, you missed one data point. Yeah. Right? You missed one data point, which is, the, which is what the creator of all that data is saying about human beings. Mm. Right? The admission of so, transmission. Exactly. So, so based on our other arguments, if you believe that there's a necessary being, 
He sent down a revelation. Okay, we include that data point in all this other data points. And what, what, are the, what does that get us? Okay, things evolved. Human beings didn't. Mm-hmm. Right? Human beings didn't evolve from monkeys. If you believe like other stuff evolved, no problem. Right? So this is like the, um, this, this allows us to preserve scientific insights. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't force us to like refute science. A lot of, you know, Dais, a lot of people on YouTube, a lot of like smart people even, the first thing that they do when trying to defend Islam or trying to defend like belief in God is they'll try to undermine science. Yeah. So Hamza says, you're shooting yourself in the foot. Mm-hmm. Because the scientific method is about sensory evidence. That's yeah. what it is. Right? So we admit sensory evidence. Like we believe in that. And even if the Christians don't. Yeah. Right? So uh, um, he says that one of the main important things of Kalam 3.0 is we don't undermine scientific inferences. And not yeah. all scientific inferences are created the same. Some are very strong uh, to the point of fact. Others are, you know, very weak. I think the establishment of Islamic epistemology mm. is so critical for people yeah. to realize that we admit transmitted knowledge, science, uh, observable knowledge, and rational conclusions essentially equally with the exception that the trans- the word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the referee between all of them, mm. right? Which is the word of Allah being transmitted knowledge. Mm-hmm. Quran, yeah. mutawatir hadith, very strong hadith. Uh, would be at the level of yufidul ilm, meaning it's that it's it is certain knowledge, not speculative knowledge, and is ult- the ultimate referee of all other sources uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, and uh, um, uh, statements from each of these sources of knowledge: transmission, observation, and reason. Yeah, exactly. And mm-hmm. and mass transmitted. Uh, we spent a little bit of time speaking about uh, mass transmitted knowledge. That a lot of people will say, skeptics will say, for example, that, oh, we don't admit mass transmitted knowledge. But when you're dealing with reasonable people, almost all of our knowledge is mass transmitted. Yeah. And m- most of it, right? Yeah. Uh, especially if you're studying with a teacher, even scientific knowledge is mass transmitted because you, mm-hmm. don't, have the, um, uh, you don't have access to, let's say, Einstein. Yeah. You know, when he first wrote his theories, you're relying on the transmission of those, those things to you. I mean, it's uh, close to what we have in Hadith as Mustafid. Mm-hmm. So Mustafid is one person heard something. Mm. But then so many people trusted them that it became mass transmitted. Well, mm. likewise, how many people have seen the sperm under a microscope? How many people have seen a cell? But then it gets printed by publishers because we trust them. And it's pretty hard to say that they're lying. And then yeah. it becomes mass transmitted this is what a cell looks like this is what an atom looks like but right. most scientists have never seen it right they're just they're, they they don't have time to there's no time to go and double check for myself every single thing i see in a textbook absolutely so and it's this transmitted. is the property of what what uh sheikh mustafa sabri calls contingent knowledge mm-hmm. right it's and one of the anxieties that people have in asserting an epistemology is that they say, look, like our knowledge is contingent and we could be deceived. Yeah. Like we can't trust a transmission. We can't trust our senses. We can't trust this X, Y, Z. So Sheikh Hamza says that, well, this is the whole point of our knowledge being contingent. That because it's contingent, because it's dependent on something else, 
it's possible that it could be wrong, yeah. right? And if it's wrong, okay, then you find the truth and then you realize it's the truth and you say, okay, I was wrong. It's as simple as that. Yeah. And this is where actually we assert our epistemology. We base a lot of the, the trust that we have in our senses, in our rational capabilities and things of this nature in understanding that our contingent knowledge points to a necessary being. So uh, this is a brilliant argument, by the way, that uh, I don't think a lot of people have heard. And I've never heard this argument, right? And this is something that Mustafa al-Sabri makes. He says that the only thing you need to prove a necessary being, this is not the contingency argument, by the way. This is a different one. Mm-hmm. The only thing you need to prove a necessary being that has non-contingent knowledge, his knowledge is infinite and uh, independent, is just to look at your own knowledge. Mm. And you say, okay, what if, you know, my knowledge or my senses are deceiving me? doesn't matter, right? Uh, Because deceptions are a thing, right? Yeah. So let's say you are hallucinating or illusion. You ask yourself, well, is my knowledge contingent? And Mm. the answer is yes. You you had it one time. you, you You didn't have it at one time. Now you have it. Now you ask yourself, okay, what is the cause of my knowledge? So let's say I'm looking at a tree. The cause of my knowledge is the, the impressions of the tree impressing in my mind. Yeah. Okay, is the cause of my knowledge contingent? Hmm. And you say, well, the tree is contingent. Yes, my senses tell me that. Well, if the cause of my knowledge is contingent and my knowledge is contingent, then how, how did I get my knowledge in the first place? Hmm. There must, if every single cause of my knowledge is contingent, then that means there is absolutely no basis for my knowledge. There must, my contingent knowledge must be based and supported and uh, have a foundation of some type of necessary knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is the necessary being. And, and so so that's, it's almost like a brick uh, arch. Exactly. Where nothing's holding it together except all of them are leaning upon each other. So there, ha- there has to be at some point that they hit the ground, exactly, and that's and exactly. they rest upon something uh, of a firm foundation. Yeah, exactly. And and this is this argument. It's called the argument uh, from contingent knowledge. Yeah, which I think it's very brilliant, and this actually avoids a lot of the issues that people bring up when they are being skeptical about can I trust my knowledge? Yeah, and the answer is well, if your contingent knowledge, your fallible knowledge. Mm. you have it because there is some type of necessary con- uh, necessary being with yeah. infinite knowledge. And this means, yes, you can trust your knowledge because mm-hmm. there is a necessary being at the foundation of your knowledge. Yeah, and from this, we, we start. From this, like, the discussion's open. Yeah. We get into the other arguments. We get into contingency. We get into KCA. But this is, like, the firm footing where now you could, you could argue. Now you could debate. Now you could, let's have a discussion. All right. Once someone doesn't uh, hold their knowledge to be uh, absolute in any way, you've actually undermined your conclusion, your assertions. Exactly. exactly. Same exactly. as those who say that are we don't even we're not even sure if we truly exist. Mm-hmm. We say, okay, good. In that case, your conclusion may not exist. None of your knowledge ex- is is mm-hmm. is uh, could exist either. So yeah. I have no need to talk to you, right? You you basically are pulling out mm-hmm. of, uh, of 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 any claims. Exactly. When you when you when you undermine 
your knowledge or your existence. And what's so important, what's so awesome is like, if you say I don't exist, well, that statement itself. Yeah. Wouldn't have gotten to you. You wouldn't have been able to know that statement because it's contingent. Yeah. Like you know that before now, you know that, okay, I don't exist. You wouldn't have known that if there wasn't a necessary being. Yeah. Just that statement itself. The statement so, itself eats itself because if you say yeah. our existence is speculative, mm-hmm. like we may, we may be existing, we may be in a dream, we may be holograms uh, created by a greater being or whatever, uh, you, you're asserting it absolutely, right? You're, exactly. you're making right. a firm asserta- assertion, but you're undermining the one making the asser- assertion, mm-hmm. so yeah. therefore the assertion itself is invalid. Exactly. Yeah. And... And uh, so the other thing that Kalam gives us, so the first thing that Kalam 3.0, this, this new refor- uh, reformation, I guess, not reformation, I guess. Um, it's reorder. the next step because yeah, next Ka- step. Yeah. Kalam always comes as a response. Exactly. Yeah. When people say, why don't you just use the Quran? Okay, wonderful. We, we use the Quran. We use the Quran as a foundation and uh, telling us, giving us points of what to do. Because if someone was to say, hey, listen, I need to know if such and such a contract is valid. I need a fatwa that this contract is valid for me to buy my house with. You don't say get verses of the Quran. No, the Quran is the foundation. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's the foundation upon which everything is built. All right. So you, but you need a fatwa. You don't need a verse. You're not going to get a verse telling you if your contract if this contract made by a non-Muslim bank is valid for you. Likewise, the atheist, he's making the claim. He has to be answered, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it, it, it just, it's a type of, um, I have to say, beginner's mentality that, hey, everything's in the Quran, so I need exact, just a verse and no scholarship. This was actually the way of the Kharijites. Mm-hmm. They didn't believe in any scholarship. You only give me a verse of Quran and that's it. So we say about this that, the Quran is the foundation of fatwa, and ilm al-kalam essentially is a fatwa on how to answer an atheist. Exactly. And no one doubts, nobody ever doubts that we need fatwa in fiqh. So mm. why do you doubt that we need fatwa in aqidah? Mm. Uh, uh, atheist so-and-so fulan has said such and such. I need the fatwa. Is it right or wrong? Can I believe it or not? Yeah, yeah. It's the same that's, thing. That's a good way of looking at it. Sean. Yeah. Um, so the uh, so moving on the the next contribution that Sheikh Hamza says that we should bring to the modern discussion is that Kalam 3.0, as I mentioned with this argument, it should focus on stressing contingency, right? Stress- Explain for the regular person what is contingency. Yep, I'll get I'll get right into that. Mm-hmm. So uh, stressing contingency and what we call modalities, mm-hmm. right? These two things. This is what our uh, scholars did very well. And also defining. So these three things, definitions, contingency, and, and modality. Mm-hmm. So for those of you listening that are not familiar with these concepts, very simply, contingency ju- just means dependence. Dependence. Something, mm. is, something is dependent. Something is defined. Something uh, needs something else. Right? So that concept is called contingency. So, for example, uh, if you have a cup in front of you with some water in it, that cup is contingent. And it's, uh, you know, if for somebody that's it's not obvious for, uh, for example, the dimensions of the cup are a certain way, right? The There are oxidation reactions happening with the material of the cup as we speak. 
So it's changing. Change is an indication of dependence because it, it, it was a certain way, now it's not, right? So the cup, the, the change of the cup is dependent on something else, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the cup is dependent on the atoms of the cup to be in a certain way, mm -hmm. right? The cup is dependent on the quarks inside those atoms. It's dependent upon the oxygen around to make the glass and, and the gravity yeah. for it to settle. Yeah, exactly. It's dependent exactly. on so many things. It's dependent on a lot of things. And uh, at this moment, as you're looking at the cup right now, you can make the contingency argument with the cup right in front of you. You mm -hmm. don't need to speak about the, the beginning of the universe or the Big yep. Bang. You can make the contingency argument right by looking at the cup. Mm -hmm. That, look, this cup, this contingent thing, it logically follows that there must be something necessary, something mm -hmm. foundational that's making that exist. Yeah. Because you uh, can look at the cup. Yeah. I, lo I love when they um, establish or link contingency to morals. Yes. Mm. Because if all morals are merely just what humans agree on, mm. Or what humans uh, feel, then nothing is absolute, right? Yeah. There's no nothing absolutely wrong just because it is. It's either wrong because we all agree on it, mm. society agrees on it, or you it doesn't make you feel right, right? So therefore, okay, if I take a little girl five years old and th uh, uh, and 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 throw her into a vat of hot oil, you're telling me that that's not absolutely wrong, right? That's an argument from absurdity, right? Like. You you must tell us that that is absolute. Let's let's expand that to some of the really um, sensitive crimes that have happened to the Jews. So Hitler killing six million Jews was wrong because Western society deemed it wrong, mm. or because it just feels wrong, or because it's absolutely wrong, right. right? Or the transatlantic slave trade was that absolutely wrong, or just maybe, or all those kids getting raped in, in Boy Scouts, right. right? One guy just came in New York Times, he got raped so many times in Boy Scouts that he his rear can no longer hold in the defecation. He wears a diaper. So are, you, are we saying that that, is, that that is abuse because it feels wrong or society or is absolutely wrong? Right. So it leads to an absurdity too and a disgusting absurdity to say that there's no moral absolute. Well, who only an absolute being agent can create an absolute moral wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and in this case, only an absolute being that can determine everything else without itself being determined can mm -hmm. be the foundation of reality. Yes, correct. Right. And this is, uh, and I'll you know I'll give the formal uh, structure of the contingency argument a little bit later. But this one fact, this arguing for a necessary being. This is the thing missing in the conversation with atheists, with naturalists, with all these other people. Mm -hmm. Because when the Christians are doing it, the Christians, they don't want to actually argue for a necessary being, even though they believe that you know God is necessary. Because what, what ends up happening? If you argue that uh, God is a necessary being, and then you say, well, believe in the incarnation. Mm. I'll believe that man is a God. Yeah. Now, yeah. The scientist goes, "What? Like you just told us that yeah. there's a necessary being. It's so what? All reality. Yeah. So how can like a necessary being be determined at the same time? It doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. So can, yeah. 
can you explain for people now, you explain contingency, and now we're saying we're talking a lot about absolutes uh, necessary being existing by necessity. Could you explain that a little more? Yeah, so uh, l- uh, then let me just talk about the contingency argument then. Maybe it'll um, click for some people. If you look at the cup in front of you, that cup could have been another way. Mm-hmm. And I'm, t- I'm speaking at this point in time, not in the past, not in the future. At this point in time, as you're looking at the cup, you ask yourself, it could have been another way. It could have been bigger. It could have been smaller. It could have been a different color. So many different properties it could have been, right? Mm-hmm. And you ask yourself, okay, what is making the cup the way it is right now? Right now. I'm not going to assume anything. Nothing's assumed. And then you say, okay, it's the, it's the material of the cup, the plastic. And then you say, okay, is the plastic contingent? Right now. And yes, it could, it's, it could have been another way. The plastic molecules could have arranged themselves in a different way. It could have been more heat resistant, mm-hmm. uh, less heat resistant. It could have been a different color, right? It could have uh, had BPH, like the harmful chemical, whatever, all those things, right? And then you say, okay, the plastic's contingent. So what's making the plastic the way it is? And you say, okay, the atoms inside the plastic, right? The molecules. And then you ask yourself, okay, are the molecules contingent? And the answer is yes. It could, it could have been another way. There could have been different molecules, right? In a different configuration. Mm-hmm. That if you switched up the molecules, the cup would have turned into water. Yeah. Or the, the cup could have turned into some other, other thing, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you say, okay, it's not the atoms, it's not the molecules. What are the molecules made out of? Okay, they're made out of atoms. The atoms are made out of quarks. Are quarks contingent as well? Are they dependent on something? Could they have been another way? And you say, well, yes, a different configuration of quarks. Uh, you could have the atomic bomb inside your house, mm-hmm. right? So, okay, but they're not. They're, they're in this plastic cup. So... What's making the quarks in that specific arrangement? And you go down, you go, you keep going down at every single level, you will find something contingent. Mm -hmm. And the assertion is that what's making the cup the way it is in front of you right now cannot be a contingent thing. Because if it was a contingent thing, you'd get this infinite regress, right? you'd get this infinite chain of contingent things that they could have been another way. They could have been another way, but it's like this. They could have been yeah. another way, but it's like this. So what's making it that, that way? And you keep going down to a foundation of reality where nothing makes it any sort of way, but it makes everything the way it wants. Yeah. This is what a necessary being is, that nothing makes it the way it is. This mm-hmm. is, this is the, the definition of summit in yeah. um, so to the class. Mm-hmm. So nothing makes it, nothing determines it, nothing uh, puts a restriction on it in any way, but it chooses and restricts and makes everything the way it is. Yeah. Right? So there must be some type of foundation for reality in that way. Mm-hmm. So at this moment, as you're looking at the cup, it is contingent and it points to a necessary being that's yeah. keeping it in that way at this moment in front of you right now. Mm-hmm. Right? And this is the contingency argument. And stability, stability only exists because people, uh, true stability exists only because of an absolute. 
Yeah. And relative stability exists when r- other relative things are treated as absolute, right? Yeah, yeah if exactly. You th- if you yeah. think about it in everyday life, right, like the rules, the institutions, that the only way to be stable is we, om- we almost sort of treat them that way, right? Mm-hmm. And only people who are uh, really, like, um, ambitious say to themselves, hold on a second, why does it have to be that way, right? And they are the ones who disrupt and transform. Yeah, and they upset everyone in the beginning because, hold on, you're disrupting our stability here, right? But then they become the revolutionary. They bring some new yeah. industry. They change things up. But human uh, stability, you, we can almost argue that this is a, it's built in us yeah. to need stability. <laughs> yeah. It's a construct like this. Exactly. They, yeah. they, he, every human being, every child wants stability. Mm-hmm. Now, w- when we start tracing, if if we are built to desire stability, there must be an actual stability, not yeah. an imagined stability. Absolutely, right? absolutely. And, and so we can all say that this almost transmits even to our fitra. Mm-hmm. It's it has there is a fitri element to it, the need and the craving for stability, mm-hmm. for an for absolute stability. And it's it's almost it's necessary, right? Yeah. And this is what I was going to mention about modality, that the discussion, when we have these types of discussions in Kalam, we, we speak about things that are necessary, mm-hmm. that are possible, that are impossible, right? Like in all worlds, in all circumstances, because of the laws of logic, yeah. things that are actual, meaning they actually exist, and things that are continual, like habits, like yeah. fire burns, right? So these are what we call modality. Mm-hmm. And in the language of modality, everything that we see around us including ourselves are we're possible beings yeah. because we could have been a certain way we could have been another way right and the the argument that i just gave a couple minutes ago um it proves to us that every possible being requires yeah. a necessary being to exist mm-hmm. right and um so so yeah so this is uh, you know i i really love this argument and i i think i remember i told you like very long time ago um, and I also told Muin this, that the contingency argument is like, you know, it's, it's irrefutable, yeah. you know, to, to me at least. Y- and, you can, uh, y- yeah, continue. So I just think like this is the strongest argument ever because you don't need to assume anything. Yeah. You can, other person could be saying, oh, I don't exist, right? Okay, okay, let's take it for granted. You don't exist. Let's work with the thought that you have. You don't exist. Where did you get that? Yeah. Right? Okay, everything's an illusion. All right, fine. Illusions are a thing. Okay, yeah. so where did you get your illusions? Okay, let's... Yeah. Everything has ingredients. Yeah. Yeah. Like, no matter what the other person says, yeah. this argument works. Yeah. Right? Uh, and, and it could be reduced easily. Exactly, yeah. Only you tell someone very simply that a so-and-so had a mom, so-and-so had a mom. That's a grandma. Then you have a great-grandma. Then a great-great-grandma. Then a great-great-great-grandma. All right, well, eventually there has got to be the first grandma because you're, like, again, your instinct, tell, your fitra itself will not accept a nonstop chain of grandmas, right? So, likewise, dominoes. You hit one domino, and it keeps going and going and going and going and going. Well, why are we chase, tracing it? Because we want to see where the first one is. Mm-hmm. And you say to someone, no, don't even bother. There's no first one. It's going to just keep going all the way right, right. down. It's, that's, it's absurd. That that those two examples you gave, yeah. that's actually the Kalam cosmological argument. 
yeah. which talks about events in the past. Mm. Mm. And, and you're talking about the current. This one talks about exactly, the current. Exactly, right here. Yeah, so the example right would here. be you're falling off of a ledge, Yeah. right? Okay, you're in the air. Yeah. And somebody says, oh, no, you, you won't fall off. You're in the air. You won't fall off. And I say, well, why wouldn't you fall off? It's like, look, somebody else is holding on to his leg. And then mm -hmm. I say, and then he says, oh, look, there's 20 people holding on to his leg. Yeah. He's not going to fall off. Yeah. Right. And I say, yeah. no, like in order to not fall off, he has to be holding a branch. He has the top to be person. Yeah. at the top. The yeah. top person. And the person says, no, no, look, there's an infinite number of people holding yeah. on to his leg. Yeah. There's no way he's going to fall off. Mm -hmm. But but look, he's the dude's not holding on to a branch. All of them are going to fall. Yeah. Right. So this is the contingency argument. Right. I, it's very powerful. Yeah. In this stream, we talked about Dawa in East Africa with the most basic and simple of people. Well, we don't live there, though. Mm -hmm. We live here. We have to know that in the Western Hemisphere and city folk will deal with other smart people. It becomes a necessary knowledge if for anybody who either A, wants to do Dawa, B, has children who are going to get exposed to smart people or the Internet. Okay, or C, themselves are, are exposed to, to clever people and need to protect yourself. It literally, for some people, it could become a fard because it's an obligation to guard your iman from doubters. Doubters are all over the, the internet and all over the world uh, the, that we live in. Mm -hmm. So therefore, that which is needed to fulfill an obligation becomes an obligation. That's, That's the it. principle here. That mm -hmm. which is needed to fulfill the obligation of of refuting these ideas, that itself becomes an obligation, right? Yeah. So um, people should study Edmund Kalam. They should listen to Naz's podcasts. He has a live stream recently on why people are, what are the, some of the reasons people leave Islam and what are some of the answers to those things? Yeah. In, who did you do it with? Uh, uh, Dr. Yusuf uh, Osman Lulu. Can, uh, can you go to SoundCloud, Safina Saidi SoundCloud page? get that link and put it here because that was another one and he's somebody who's interested in Edmund Kalam too and go to basiraeducation.com uh, or .org it's there in the, in the stream go there and list, and start taking the classes with Hamza Karamali and inshallah soon your um, your book is going to come out soon Inshallah ta'ala. It's an extremely important book that's going to come out on the problem of evil which again is something that Nobody can deny that it's all over the place. Okay? People are complaining and using this. No, it's on Safina Saidi's page. People are using this argument um, popularly and in a contrived way, right? It's not just um, uh, that people, you, you, you just passed it. Yeah, there. Uh, no, the one above it. Yeah, this one. Copy the link there. Um, they're using this argument and people naturally use this argument. You have to have an answer. If it's an obligation for us to protect people's iman and our own iman, then it is an obligation for us to learn these things and to know these things. So uh, what else do you have? Should we take some questions that you got from the stream? Uh, sure, sure. I just want to um, just make one more, uh, one more contribution, which is I just want to look at a case study yeah. that Hamza gave. Yeah. And then show you how Kalam 3.0 would respond to that. 
All right, go ahead. So very popular argument now among naturalists, and you'll find this with university professors, even if you take a psychology degree, any, anybody, right? Um, is that our human mind is a product of evolution, number one, right? And Daniel Dennett makes this argument, uh, Richard Dawkins as well. So if our human minds are a product of evolution, then detecting agency, detecting causation, right? Wanting to, uh, you know, have a God to believe in, let's say, these are agents of survival, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's the whole evolutionary thing is all about survival, nothing more. Yeah. It's all about survival. So mm -hmm. if our perceptions and our minds are just designed for survival, then all these design or these evidences that we give for God, all the things that the Quran talks about that, look, the rain is evidence for God, the sea, the, 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 the animals, the bee, right? This all, this tafakkur, this cannot be admitted as evidence. Mm -hmm. We just do this because our minds are created for survival. We look at things, they're designed. And that's why, you know, like we believe in God and all this other stuff, right? Very, very, like, a lot of people get shaken up by this argument. Mm -hmm. And what Kalam, uh, most people do, like, you know, people online um, and Da'is, they start to undermine evolution and they attack mm -hmm. science and they'll look at the scientific method and then they'll demolish that, right? Kalam 3.0 says, look, we don't need to do that. Let's look at the premises. Our minds are a product of evolution. So our thoughts, they're all a product of evolution. Let's look at that first premise. Ignore everything else. Let's look at that first premise. Yeah. Ask, is that really true? You're treating it as thoughts. absolute. You're treating exactly. it as an absolute. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, is that really true? That the mind is a product of evolution and all of our thoughts, all of our perceptions of design are just, you know, just meant for survival. Is that true? And the answer is no, that's not true. Because remember, we spoke about our epistemology, that we know a lot of things that are badihi, that are innate within us, and we know them to be true. And okay, they help us in evolution, that's great. But that doesn't mean that somehow they're false, right? Like my senses are telling me that the sun is very hot and I shouldn't look at it. Okay, it's, it's good for evolution, for survival, but it doesn't mean it's false, right? Yeah. The sun is hot and I shouldn't yeah. look at it, right? Just because it um, helps in survival does not necessitate that it's false. Correct. And on, on top of that, if everything is merely established for, uh, or only exists for us just for the sake of survival, mm -hmm. that conclusion itself, right, becomes undermined. Exactly, right. And this is the planting uh, um, argument from naturalism to undermine yeah. knowledge. So science itself becomes uh, undermined, right? Yeah. So um, uh, so this is how a Kalam 3.0 approach would be. It wouldn't be to respond to every single point. Mm -hmm. right? It would be to find that one point, that one assumption on which the whole argument stands. Yeah. And we look at that assumption and then we look at it from our epistemology and say, look, you're you're leaving other parts of the picture uncovered. You're saying this, you know, all the, all, all of our minds are products products of evolution. All yeah. of our thoughts. Where's the evidence for that? Mm -hmm. Right. You know, a lot of things that they they don't help us survive, but we know them. And some things uh, they help us survive, and we know them. Yeah. Right. Our knowledge is contingent. So well, this, the, yeah. The, the, a brother said that you had earlier said when regarding evolution that you had said that 
a certain data point is missed out and that there is a creator and, and the Qur'an yeah. telling us about Prophet Adam. And he says, well, how do you say this to an atheist? So I'm going to answer them. You tell me what Sheikh Hamza Karamali would have said to, to this. So the answer is that you're not attacking, you're not a- get offering him the Qur'an as a proof because he doesn't accept the Qur'an. What you're saying right. is your epistemology is limited. You right. have limited certain knowledge merely to what science can empirically prove. That's mm-hmm. your problem. You have to admit transmitted knowledge. So I recently said to a young man, prove to me that George Washington existed. Prove it to me scientifically. Right? And he said, well, you know, we really can't do that scientifically, so that's why maybe it's at the conspiracy too. <laughs> so I said, okay then. Well, why then? How then? Would all of the history books written about the United States, even in England, which has made the England, it was the loser in the war, did they all meet? He said, no, no, that's absurd. So it has to be true. So he understood that Tawatur is true. Mass transmission does produce certain knowledge. right? And then once, if a scientist were, or if a person was to admit that transmission can produce certain knowledge, then we say, okay, let's look at the transmission of the Quran and Hadith. And we could go into that realm. So it's not that the person is using the Qur'an as a proof to an atheist. It's saying that the atheist, your epistemology has narrowed what should have been a little bit more open in terms of that's, sources. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. That's exactly what uh, Sheikh Hamza would say. Because, uh, like I said, Kalan 3.0, the method, is not that an atheist says X. Yeah. And then, oh, now I have to respond. Mm-hmm. No, you ask, okay, well, why are you saying this? Right, and then we make our own argument. Mm-hmm. We say no, the we believe in revelation. Here's why. Yeah. Right. We believe that our knowledge is contingent and points to a necessary being. This is the first thing that we establish with the contingent yeah. argument. Mm-hmm. And here's why. Yeah. And because of that, this is a data point that can be included now. And what's your response to that? Yeah. This is the so we have to keep the frame in the discussion with us and let them respond instead of them keeping the frame and us just yeah. responding and reacting to every new shubha that they're giving. And that's right? exactly why some people, this is the, this is the real problem that people have with science and the Quran uh, approaches yeah, is because yeah. they've essentially accepted the fact that the only truth, truth can only be known through science. Yeah. Right. And then once you accept that, say, okay, we can play you at this game, mm-hmm. but you, this is not your game, right? You, we have right. to insist that, there are other sources of knowledge, right? Exactly, yeah. And um, one of the insidious things with just responding and reacting to their worldview mm. is that those things start to bleed into our worldview and our understanding of the deen if yeah. you don't know epistemology. Mm-hmm. So one very key idea is design, for example. How we define design and how the Christians define design is actually quite different. Mm-hmm. So when the Christians are arguing with atheists and naturalists, what they're trying to show is that there's a supernatural cause to something in the universe because the, the thing is so complex. It's so complex. Like look at, you know, look at the, the hand. It's so complex. Or look at the bacteria. It's so complex. There's no way that some other material cause could have made that. Mm-hmm. Right? So there must be a supernatural cause. Yeah. Right? This is... There, this is in the same framework because the mm-hmm. Christians that are arguing with naturalists and the atheists, they're both materialists. Yeah. 
Yeah. They're saying there must be a supernatural. Okay, it's not a cause like you and me, like yeah. you know Bob and Joe or whatever, but it's it's a bigger Bob and Joe, bigger, yeah. Yeah. you know. And that's exactly what William Lane Craig, you know, when he was speaking with Roger Penrose, Sir Roger Penrose, this is exactly what he said. He mm -hmm. said, "Look, there are three types of existent things. There's there's either a mind, there's either something material, right? There's either something, um, uh, sorry, two types, right? There's only two categories of existent things." So the cause of the universe, it can't be material. So it must be a mind. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a, uh, uh, it's an all powerful mind. It, it's an all powerful person that's mental. Mm -hmm. This is not how we define God. Yeah. yeah. Right. No, no Muslim would define God like this. Yeah. Our definition of God and our definition of design is that God is a necessary being who's volitional, right? He's a necessary being who's volitional, and the, the point of design is to show that he's volitional. Yeah. The point of design is to show that. I mean, he has a will. He's doing things on exactly. purpose. Exactly. Uh, so so what, another way of putting what you're saying is that um, you're saying that the Christians have accepted the naturalist's um, premise that exactly. causes and effects are actually absolutes. Absolutely. They're necessary yep. absolutes. Yep. And we yep. say they're not necessary absolutes. Mm -hmm. Right. Water makes things wet. Fire makes things uh, burnt mm -hmm. only because Allah wanted that way. Absolutely. He, he very simply could have caused water to burn and fire to make wet. Mm -hmm. Right. So there, so which is where miracles in the Christian world is such a big deal in mm -hmm. the Western hemisphere. It is such a big deal, yep. but from the Islamic premise is really not a big deal. It's, 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 it, there's no difference in Allah's will between a miracle and a regular everyday happening Except right. that one is he's made common, and one is an exception. Mm -hmm. That's it. In essence, yeah. in the essence of it, there's 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 nothing that needs explanation, right? Like he, he causes and effect are never the explanation of anything. The cause and the effect have nothing to do with each other. Allah has just brought them together so we can be sane and we can manipulate them, study them, use them for everyday life, and not go crazy. If yeah. every day gravity was different, we'd go crazy, right? And then the miracle is just something. It's a different way of doing, some, uh, reaching the conclusion so that we can realize that Allah is near to us. That's exactly. really all it is. Yep. As a result, in that world, in the Islamic world, karamat and uh, karamat happen all the time and people keep walking, Right. It's not says like halas. Oh, we gotta stop and take pictures and everything. No, it's just something that happens. And we have such a sane or such a, a sober view of karamat. We say, okay, yes, it was a nice karama. It's a gift from Allah. Don't let get to your head and go astray. Right, Whereas right. for in the Christian world, uh, you see like five miracles in the last century reported in the Catholic world. Sheikh Muhammad Al Yaqubi said he when he was young there was a karama every day with his dad, right. And the family would say, okay, just don't, don't talk about it to your friends in school, right? Don't say anything. Keep it just, it's something between us and Allah, right? Allah. Yeah, so they have taken the, on nature as an absolute. Mm. And it's, it's yeah. because they don't, uh, they've abandoned the concepts of yeah. modality that we spoke about. They mm -hmm. think scientific causes are necessary things. Yeah. Right? This is how the scientists and the naturalists, this is the worldview that they're coming from. Yeah. That uh, that fire burns is necessary, yeah. right? That's not just a possible and continual thing that we see, but it's it's 
you know, ontologically necessary. Which so is interesting because that's a philosophical statement. It is, absolutely. It's not scientific yeah. at all. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, that's, that, that's where we have to respond. That's where scientism is a philosophy has n that has nothing to do with that's bit maybe based upon scientific evidence, but it is a separate philosophy that people have to understand that scientism is a philosophy. It's not science. Scientism is never born in a lab. It's born in people, people's brains, right? Yes. It's, it's conclusions made by people's intellects, and those conclusions have to be put to the test. And it's not being tested in beakers and labs. It's being tested with logic and on paper, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's the, really the biggest thing where science is not just advancing. It's these departments are promoters of scientism as well. Mm -hmm. Is what Ghazali fought back in the day with Tabaiyin, right? And this yep. is in, it's interesting where it's it's a very strange segue, but when people this is but it does sort of make sense. You'll see how there is a parallel here. When people talk a lot about istighatha being shirk, right? Istighatha asking someone dead to help you. We can say, listen, say it's haram, say it's an innovation, no problem. But uh, why would you say it's shirk? You're saying because you're assigning power to someone other than Allah, right? Like, wait a second. What difference does it make if he was alive or dead in that case, right? That's so why the belief is important in that case. The, the belief issue, of the, the person. Exactly. That's yeah. where your real problem, and this is going to come in, in Arcview in a Hanbali fit class, in Arcview, right? That Sheikh Yusuf bin Sadiq talks at length about this. It's like your issue is that you are assigning, because the, in that aqidah, they believe in qudra. Being uh, with other than Allah, if so, you think Qudra is if I ask somebody alive today that they have Qudra, no, they have no power. You can ask somebody alive, he has no power, you ask someone dead, he has no power. The only difference, the fair, the fair criticism is there's no certainty, there's no reason to believe that someone dead can help you. So, you're basically Absolutely. talking to the air, you're talking to a wall. Yeah. That's a that's a fair argument, right? No, there's there's no hard textual factual uh, scriptural evidence lead to tajrib uh on the side scriptural evidence that someone in his grave can hear you and help you so in that case it still wouldn't be shirk it would be simply like talking to a wall right there's no there's no you're it's useless the maximum that it could get is useless right mm -hmm. but the pro, the what sheikh yusuf bin sadiq said is that the the foundational error is the misappropriation of divine power. And yeah. in our aqidah, we hold that Allah has not even given divine power to anybody. He hasn't given qudra to anybody. Right? Oh, your camera just went off. Yep. He hasn't given divine power to anybody. Nobody has divine power. Living or dead. Mm -hmm. And that's the biggest difference. And if a person were to believe that a human being has power, has the ability lent on loan from Allah... Then you've exited Ahl Sunnah, as uh, Imam al Dardir says. You're an innovator. And if you believe he has power independent of Allah, then you're a kafir. Right? So we don't hold that anyone has power in the first place. And that's what was one of his defenses in that course that istighatha is not shirk. But the point being is that the argument is based on an assumption. We have to look at the assumption. Yeah. And what you were just saying is the assumption of Christians that. Uh, of, of Christian theological uh, approaches that causes and effect have absolute power. Mm -hmm. So it, again, it's a subject of, of Qudra. Like what do they believe about Qudra? They mm -hmm. believe that water actually wets. 
fire actually burns, stuff like that. Gravity he actually pulls. That uh, God came into time and He died on the cross. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, uh, what's the biggest? There could not be a bigger assertion of uh, cause and effect there, right? Yeah. God, God is determined by the causes and effects of the world that He mm -hmm. created. They yeah. believe that. So, yeah. Here's a good question for you. Can you explain how? Learning this knowledge increases our iman. Um, well, I'll just talk about it for me personally, right? Uh, is that if I believe that something is true, yeah. and at the back of my mind, I am a type of evidentialist. I think most people tend, uh, you know, are, that they want some type of proof for what they believe. Mm -hmm. It could be uh, any type, it could be a proof, like, let's say somebody they admire says, oh, I believe this. That's that, that could be a proof for them, right? It could yep. be a proof that, you know, they, some experience that they had, it convinces them. Halas, good for them. But for me, like, I feel that if Islam really is true, then it, it should, if this is the kalam from God, then it should speak to every single thing in the universe. That, you know, Nursi, Sayyid Nursi, rahimahullah, he said that God created two books. There are two Qur'ans. One is the Qur'an of the Kaun, of the universe, and the other is the Qur'an of his speech. Mm. And they have to align. Because, like, if, if I created a table, and then my, my uh, you know, the Ikea, the Ikea things yep. that you get in the box, and the instructions are absolutely wrong, yep. like the instructions for how to build a car, then you would know, okay, whoever put this together, they're confused. Yeah. So this is why I believe that investigating scientific truths, right? Investigating these types of arguments, like for me personally, increases my iman because I see the correspondence between what we actually have in the world and what Allah is saying in the Quran. Yeah, and it, so they match. They, uh, they, the more that you can present that they match, not only that, you must dismantle claims that they don't match exactly right? yeah. you have to yeah. dismantle that it becomes yeah. an obligation and allah gave us a brain he gave us eyes and he gave us a book okay what my eyes see what my brain thinks and what the book says they have to be this in line because they're all from the same creator and that's what i believe it was Tuftazani spoke about tanaqud al-barahin right mm -hmm. that there can never be all of these are divine proofs Hmm. Right? Every creation points back to its creator. Okay? Absolutely. And our brain is created. The world is created. The Quran is the word of Allah uncreated, directly from Allah. The prophet, messengership, is a created message to us. Right? Every messenger is a created, you know, messenger to us. So all of these things must align. And when you get a puzzle and you put it, and you have the pieces together, uh, you, you lay out a puzzle, 500 pieces. And you say, this puzzle will produce this picture. All right, we all believe it. But it's so wonderful to start seeing the Absolutely. pieces come together. And yeah, then yeah. when you put it, you're like, oh, this is amazing. Well, you, you believed it in the first place. There was no yeah. difference in your belief. Mm -hmm. But now you are now more amazed and in awe by this creator when you see these things coming together. Isn't yeah. Allah saying, end of Surah Ali Imran, think and look and think and look. Why? What's the end result? So that you could say, subhanAllah. Wow. Right? This is an amazing creation. And that, that is the end, uh, that is the uh, a goal, okay, of all contemplation. The goal of all contemplation is to come to the aggrandizing of the creator. Absolutely. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's now 2.58. Jazakallah for coming on. And we will have you on. This is our... Uh, Oz, uh, Naz is our um, uh, Kalam correspondent. The official Safina Saidi Kalam correspondent. Every time that he dips into the world of Kalam, we may not hold him up for another hour like this time. Maybe it'll be just 20 minutes or something. But in the future, we'll see more of Naz. He's our Kalam correspondent. And I think that if we, we can make it practical for you, you just hop on, drop us some nuggets and gems every few days, oh. every few weeks or so, 10, 15 minutes, because one of the things about this podcast that we started, it's Phoenix Society Podcast that was started by Moeen, uh, and this live stream and our organization in general is that we are pretty heavy on Ilm al-Kalam. It's one of the many things we do. Uh, the da- da'wah, the charity work with the soup kitchen, fiqh, tasawwuf, it's all youth work. That's all part of it, but Kalam is a very, very heavy part of it because we hold it to be necessary. Too many intellectuals and philosophers out there laying traps for people. So it's not going to be learned by a course. It's going to be learned by a regular pecking away, regular dripping, to the point that people on the stream, if they've been listening for a few months, should have heard the similar things five, six, seven, eight times. Mm. That's our goal. All right. So Naz, we're going to be calling you back, inshallah. 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 Right. Thank you for uh, allowing me to take that course. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll probably be doing more of this type of research. And uh, inshallah, I'm glad to share. I yeah, really so you, it's important, so. you poke us every time you're ready to come on for even for 15 minutes. Inshallah. Jazakallah khairan. Thank you so much. Assalamu alaikum. Ladies and gentlemen, update. Back to school drive is this Saturday, September 2nd. Amazon link. Where is it? Can you put the link here? Go to lacosina367.org and participate by um, contributing to the wish list. What is the wish list? Amazon wish list. Pencils, pens, trapper keepers, erasers, okay, folders. What, you don't get trapper keepers for the kids? Yeah. You don't know what a trapper keeper is? A trap, a pencil case. You guys don't know what a trapper keeper is. Oh my gosh! All right, a trapper keeper. It's this really snazzy. Um, it's like a, it's got a cover. You close it and it has Velcro inside the trapper keeper. It's three rings, okay, and you put folders in there, okay, and in the folder that's like science folder, math folder. You could put loose leaf paper, and then in the in the edges of the trapper keeper. You have files and folders, l- 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 flaps. You can put your papers in there. You guys don't know what a trapper keeper is? It's not a binder. No, not really a binder, is it? Uh, it opens up, yeah. And you put your files in it, too. You call it a binder? All right. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> put, the, put the link up. And then show the audience a picture of a trapper keeper. First, put the link. Book bags, pencils, papers, all sorts of things. Okay. All right. Now, I got to see what the latest latest, uh, on the world of trapper. We used to compete in who has the coolest trapper keeper. Okay. Oh, yeah, everything. Go look up trapper keepers. You see that? 
They're called Trapper Keepers. Also. Yeah. I just graduated from high school recently. It's one of the people that I used to have these. Are you serious? Exactly, yes. Put, put pictures. Right <laughs> put pictures up. We see, in my day, they didn't have a handle. They're a little cooler than that. Yeah, put put up those ones with the with the with all the uh, the fluorescent colors because that's the type of thing we used to get in school. Laminated. Yeah, lots of trapper keeper. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you open it and it ex- it's it's got velcro a velcro case. You open it up. Yeah. People don't need that for school, I guess, anymore, huh? It's funny because the first thing when it comes up, it says Trapper Keeper, and the one of the Google things is 80s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and then the Trapper Keeper makes folders, too, right? And you stick your folder in there for math, for English, for what have you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So they start taking the link and then you um open image in your tab. They might have downloaded the external before the link installs. Yeah. You guys don't know what a trapper keeper is. That's crazy. But have you seen this thing before in school? And and they used to come in awesome. I used to get mine shiny first of all. All every year a different trapper keeper. Every year you get a different trapper keeper and new sneakers. Because they're like antiques. Yeah. Like f- first day of school, you get new clothes, you get new sneakers, and you get a new trapper keeper, new set of pencils, new set of erasers. You can't go to school with, with, with uh, uh, old stuff on the first day. Yeah, the school now gives out laptops. So go to Amazon, go to the link we supplied, and and help purchase glue sticks. Go back to that so I can read it off. Right? Glue sticks, loose leaf paper, crayons, pencils, pens, dry erase markers. Okay? Yeah, so that's what we need. Okay? Uh, Talib Razi says many African cultures have monotheism before Islam. Yes, because every nation used to get prophets. So it's no surprise that they believe in one God 
in some tribes that haven't heard of Islam. But they still have to accept the Prophet wasallam, and they have to slough off the old law that they were upon, if they have preserved it. Of course, it wasn't even preserved, right? But if it was preserved, let's say hypothetically you go to an, a, a tribe and they say, oh no, this here is the scroll directly that our Prophet wrote, Prophet so-and-so, and we find in it has Allah, angels, last day. So the Aqid is all the same. That confirms to us its truthfulness. But then they have different laws, like no limit on wives, for example. Uh, maybe it doesn't say, say alcohol doesn't, maybe not forbidden. Things like that. No rules on financial rules, like riba. No inheritance laws, for example. Inherit how you wish. That, they're ancient, the laws of past prophets, let's say hypothetically. We would say, oh, wonderful. Okay, now you're, you're being tested now. Because now that you know that there is another prophet... You, that's now your test. This is now, the iman in this is no longer sufficient. Up to now, your piety and keeping to that old book and that old prophet was your test. But now that you have learned about a new prophet, now this is insufficient. We never say it's irrelevant. It's the holy words of Allah and it's the teaching of a prophet. However, it's uh, incomplete. You must now believe in the new prophet and we have to convince you of his prophecy, too. There, there's a, anyone walks in and says there's a new prophet, I'm not accepting it. Convince us. Show us the proof, which we have to now do that. And then we would say, you are now no longer, once you believe in this new prophet, you're no longer allowed to follow that old law and those old prayers, right? And those old ways of doing things. Now you have to pray the way the prophet Muhammad prayed. You must follow him. You must honor him, follow him. Okay? And you can honor those old books, no doubt about it, and we will honor it with you. But we don't follow it anymore. This is what we follow. There's a new passport now. Okay? The old passport is no longer recognized. You want to keep it? Keep it. But it's no longer recognized. And on top of that, the language that you used to say, let's say that you had a word for God. Yeah, you could say it. This, we were just saying God right now, right? It must be some Germanic word or some Aryan word for God, right? For Allah. That's the name of Allah in, in some language. Fine. You can use that, but not in the, uh, uh, in the ritual prayer. You're going to use Allah in the ritual prayer. Outside that, you want to pray to God. He here Talib Raza is saying, Waqa, Nagai. Yeah, no problem in regular speech and in supplications outside of Salah. But you can't know. But inside Salah, it's different. So there's some parameters here. Can they go visit the grave of their old prophet and honor him? Of course they can. In Yemen, they go to Nabi Hud, and it wasn't even their prophet, right? Uh, prophet Ismail is buried in, uh, uh, we know a prophet Ismail. Did not the prophet himself, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Isra'i Maraj, visit the grave of Musa? So we're allowed to go visit the graves of old prophets, of, of pre-Islamic prophets, of course. How could you not? How could you not honor that prophet? So... Uh, that's a hypothetical, of course, that does not exist. There's no record or no evidence that any religion has been preserved of the past scriptures. Even the Torah and the Injil, which had a full community of support, okay? They, their book is not preserved. Um, what about the people before that prophet first of all any muslim who has not any uh, any human being who has not received 
the message of the last and final Prophet وسلم, Muhammad وسلم, will not be judged, will not be tortured, will not be punished. And we'll go over those evidence. There, are, there is kalam about it, but this is the strongest evidence. And that is the Mu'tamid, uh, that is the Ash'ari opinion on that, and I believe the Maturidi too. Why will we not say, well, they should be judged by their old Prophet? No, because that old Prophet didn't come with the necessary proofs. He came for the proofs for that time and not people, right? The Bible, you're not judged by the Bible. You're not judged by the, the, the Torah because in today's world, they don't have the necessary proofs that a human being needs, right? The things doesn't match up. The book doesn't match up with the world around them because it's been altered. So it's not enough of a hujjah, a proof. Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us. Okay. To the end of this week's, okay, um, that brings us to the end of this week's series of live stream. And we are, again, support La Cocina's uh, back to school night, uh, barbecue for Saturday. And we will see you Monday. Hopefully, Ali Islam, you will be the um, correspondence, whichever one of you comes, okay, with pictures. Oh, we need pictures, okay? We need videos. Put them on to the Instagram, but also send them to Omar Abbasi's email address. Send the videos there, send the pictures there, so we give everyone a the morning report, right? Uh, on Monday Monday morning, we're at the morning. You know Zazu? He gives the morning report. You don't know about that? My gosh, you guys don't know anything anymore. Okay, not Trapper Keepers. You don't know Trapper Keepers. You don't know Zazu. I don't know, man. I need to maybe need to get some. Uh... <laughs> you guys don't know Zazu who gives the morning report. So we need the morning report Monday morning on what happened on Saturday. Inshallah, we'll give you everyone that update so that you can continue to support this work. Jazakumullah khairan, everyone. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruk wa natubu ilayk wal asr. Inna al-insana lafi khusr. إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله Oh